I have here Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola was developed, invented by Dr. John Pemberton in Atlanta, Georgia in 1886. This caramel-colored syrup was concocted in his backyard in a brass kettle. And until the 1970s, it was basically an American drink. But then the executives of Coca-Cola decided to go global with it. And so they started their global campaign. And a recent study has revealed that 97% of the population of the world has heard of Coca-Cola. 72% recognize the logo Coca-Cola. And 51% of the world's population have actually tasted a Coca-Cola. I wonder what would have happened if Jesus had put his great commission into the hands of the executives of the Coca-Cola company. Imagine how different our world would be together if Jesus' name were recognized today by 97% of the world's population. We have tasted the Lord and seen that he is good. And that is our desire for the rest of the world. Last words that a person speaks are always valuable to us. Maybe you still have recorded a voice of somebody on voicemail that's, all, that's died and you just like to play and hear the voice. One man lost his elderly father. He expressed his sympathy to him and he said, did he have any last words? And the man said, no, my mom was with him to the very end. Well, Jesus isn't, a de isn't dead. He reigns. He's very much alive today. But his last words, among his last words on earth, were these. The scene is that the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I will, I will be with you. I am with you always to the very end of the age. On November 9th of 09, the assault ship USS New York was commissioned into service. What makes this ship uh, a very... Uh, emotional kind of ship and, 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 and an opportunity there when it was commissioned was the fact that it's built, constructed by steel of the destroyed World Trade Center in New York City. The national anthem was sung and then the command given, man, your ship, and the ship was off. This commissioning of the ship pales in comparison to the great commission that this text is called, but it is Jesus' commission. We are moved by such ship commissions, but we ought to be more moved by this one, the last words of Jesus. Because without the multiplying of disciples, we have a problem. Without sharing our faith, the great commission becomes the great omission. God calls us to be multipliers, 
Now, in this series of Together, we've considered what it means to worship together. That's valuable to God. That's what he called us to do, to worship together, to follow Jesus together, to serve together, to shape one another by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit within and among us. And all of that really falls flat if we are not multipliers together for the name and for the glory of Jesus Christ. So that's why we are revisiting these words of Jesus today and words that we need to learn and we must learn to obey. So this is what we learn. First, he gave us the greatest authority. He said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And he was passing that authority on to his apostles. It reminds me of that story. I may have told you already, forgive me, about two cows that saw a delivery, milk delivery truck, and they saw painted on the sign, homogenized, pasteurized, fortified, vitamin D added, low fat. And one cow said to the other, makes you kind of feel inadequate, doesn't it? (laughs) Don't you know that when Jesus gave this commission, these apostles, these disciples felt so inadequate? Just like you and me. These men were from a small little part, a speck on the globe, this little northern part of Israel called Galilee. They were common, ordinary men, mostly fishermen. They hadn't gone to schools of higher learning. They lived a very mundane, ordinary life, and Jesus tells them to go into all the world, and you do that by my authority. They must have been overwhelmed. Whole world? You mean we have to deal with the Roman Empire and their military advancements? You expect us to to confront the sophistication and intellectualism of the Greeks? Yes, Jesus says. How can we do that? We can't do that. Jesus is saying, you're right. You can't. That's why I'm giving you my authority. And I'm giving you my power as well. Because in Acts 1.8 he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Friends, the only way we can do what God has commissioned us to do, the church, is by his authority and by his power. You go by your own power. I go by my own power. I'm going to fall flat on my face. I go by my authority or the authority of this church or the authority of us as people. Forget it. We only go by the authority of Jesus. And in his power, he moves within us to do greater things than we can think or imagine. And we need both. One without the other is not sufficient. You know, we, when, we go, when we leave this place today, those of us who are in Christ, the Bible says we have been clothed with Christ. Now, some of you are... Are, are, are in military or you're an officer or you're, a, uh, uh, you're in the police department or something, you wear a uniform. Remember those old cops and robbers movies? Stop in the name of the law! Because if you're wearing a uniform and you're giving orders, you're representing a greater authority. When we leave here, we are clothed with Christ and we are representing him in the world to people. It's by his authority that we speak to people, we engage with people, and we care about people to the nth degree. John Stott wrote, his authority on earth allows us to dare to go to all the nations. His authority in heaven gives us only gives us our only hope of success, and his presence with us leaves us no other choice. Christ gave us the greatest authority. He also gave us the greatest assignment. 
He said, go and make disciples. Now, when Austin Gagneau preached this a few weeks ago, you remember that he was talking about the word nations in this text. And he said the Greek word is ethnos, which is right, which is ethnicities. It's about people groups. So within the context of the United States, for instance, we, we are, have one citizenship. We have a number of people groups and we have a number of ethnicities and even subcultures. I remember Doug Margeson. A few of you remember Doug Margeson who grew up here. And uh, Doug ended up being a missionary in South America for a time. Now he lives in Florida. He's in insurance sales right now. But he's always in a kingdom man. And on his back, he took two years having tattooed on his back a full-color version of the seven-headed dragon of Revelation. Why? I don't know. <laughs> I do not want one. I'm just not a tattoo guy, you know? But Doug is a stellar man of faith, full of life. And I remember when Doug was here and and, and, and enjoying that tattooing process, where did that take him? That took him to tattoo artists and to tattoo parlors and to people who love tattoos, to people I would never be able to communicate with. I love people like Doug. That, that is, a, that is, a, that is a, a group of people, as every group has, a group of people that need to be reached for Jesus Christ. Oswald Smith wrote, we talk of the second coming of Christ when half the world has never heard of the first. As you are going, he is saying, make disciples. This word go, go and make disciples, the word go in the original language is a participle, which indicates ongoing action. As you are going, make disciples. In other words, what Jesus is not saying is you got to become a missionary. This is not about going to another nation or a different kind of people. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, as you move in your realm, make disciples. You have a world that I don't know anything about. I probably don't even understand what you do at work if you try to describe it to me. I don't get it. There's some of you are teachers and you are dealing with children every day representing Jesus Christ in a schoolroom, giving a little bit of light and hope and loving on kids by your quality of teaching and being true to your calling. Some of you are going to hospitals, ministering to people. Some of you are going to factories and, and offices, you're going to your neighborhood, you're doing your shop, whatever you're doing, as you are going, make disciples. However, whatever life looks like to you, Make a difference where you are for Jesus. Are you doing that? Have you done that? A student said to Charles Spurgeon, what about the heathen who have never heard? Will they be saved? And Spurgeon said, that's not the question that haunts me. The question I have is, what about us who have the gospel and never share it? Will we be saved? As you're making disciples, he says, baptize them. Now, we do insist, teach, that a person needs to be baptized by immersion to experience the new birth. We do that for a number of reasons. First of all, Jesus himself was baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. We know that. We also know that Jesus himself commanded it in this particular passage to, to baptize people coming to Christ. We have 
We have represented and illustrated in the whole book of Acts, the history of the church, the beginning of the church, that, that people, when they heard the gospel and believed, immediately they were baptized to enjoy the new birth. We read in Acts that when a person is baptized, they enjoy two promises, the gift of the Holy Spirit, along with the forgiveness, the washing away of all sins. It was the practice of the early church. We baptize by immersion because we know that's the form of the first century age. We know that's what's taught. Why do we, how do we know that? Because the Greek word for baptize can only mean to dip or to plunge or to dunk. We laughed about our daughter Chelsea when she was in high school. She had three boyfriends in high school, all of which she brought to church. They were baptized, and then she dumped them. <laughs> so we, we called we told her she had a ministry to, to date them, dip them, and dunk them. <laughs> dump them, dump them. Date, dip, dump, in that order. Well, when we baptize people into Christ, we don't want to drop them. We want to go on discipling them. Now, by the way, we don't know. We, we're not here to judge any other way to get to Jesus. We're not here judging people who are, are making decisions of people who have been sprinkled as babies or sprinkled as adults or gone to the front of the church and said a prayer or said a prayer in their living room inviting Jesus in their heart. God saves whoever he wants to save any way he wants to save. It's not our privilege to offer salvation or withhold it, right? It's only God's. All we want to do is be as faithful to the New Testament teaching as we can. And the Bible teaches that to be born again we should be immersed underwater because it best demonstrates the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And friends, you don't have to know a lot. All you have to know is one thing, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the Lord of life and died for your sins. If you know that and you want to be a Christian, that's all you have to know at the very beginning. And then you keep growing from that, okay? And I just lost my place. So, as you're going, baptize them. And after baptizing, teach them to be disciple makers. Teach them and then teach them to obey all things. And by the way, do you notice here, there are some people say that baptism is only an act of obedience. It has nothing to do with salvation. If that were true, I don't think Jesus would separate baptism act from all the other things he mentions in the Great Commission. He says, as you're going, the first thing you do is you baptize them. Why? That's new birth. And then after that, you teach them to obey all things. Baptism is a unique obedience because of what happens there. It's the place of being born again when we're putting our whole soul trust in the blood of Jesus who died on the cross for us. This is the powerful cycle. This disciple making is the powerful cycle that Jesus initiates here in this text. We make disciples by baptizing them into Christ and then teaching them to obey. And, and part of that obedience is multiplying ourselves and other people. Jesus taught that throughout his ministry, this whole idea of multiplication. You think of his parables and how many of them were about seeds and seeds bearing fruit and multiplying. The, the, the teaching of the, the metaphor, the vine and the branches, is about bearing much fruit in any number of areas of life, I think including our life with Christ. Life is to be reproduced in life. And that's really the story of God from the beginning. The first commandment was be fruitful and multiply. 
Multiplication is rooted in the person of God. And to not do that is to neglect the divine cycle that he has put in motion. Aren't you thankful today that you get to sit in a church worshiping the Lord? I mean, who was it that pointed you to Jesus? Maybe it was godly parents or grandparents. Maybe not. You know, there's some parents that have the philosophy, I'm not going to point my kids anyway religiously. They'll have to figure that out on their own. That's great parenting, isn't it? Is that for me? Tell them I'm preaching if that's for me. Okay. okay. Uh, uh, you, know, the, the, um, you know, what if we treated education like that? If I let kids decide whether they want to go to school or not. What if we treated education like that? Or health like that? I don't want to make them go to the dentist. They may hate the dentist when they grow up. Well, I hate the dentist anyway, so it doesn't matter, you know? I don't, Steve. I don't. I love you, brother. I love you. All right? No, and we're thankful. You know, it's, it's, it's you know, uh, this, this, I'm so thankful. Thankful somebody pointed me to Jesus. What if you hadn't been pointed to Jesus? Where would you be today? What would your life look like today if somebody hadn't cared enough to talk to you and point you to him? What conversations are you having with people who need Jesus? Who are you burdened about and for? Are you embracing the great commission or the great omission? Spurgeon wrote, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. If they will perish, let them perish with our arms around their knees. Let no one go there unwarned and unprayed for. And Jesus gave the greatest assurance. And we need this, friends. We need his assurance of his presence, don't we? And I know what you're saying. I know what you're thinking. I don't know what to say. You don't know what to say? Can you imagine standing before the Lord and he says to you, who are you bringing with you? Well, I didn't know what to say. What to say? What were you rescued from? How far do you think you were saved? What was done for you? Who died in your place so that you are not, you are not entering hell today? And you don't know what to say? Shame on us. For any excuse we might give to the Lord, especially the one we didn't know what to say. You know, being in the courtroom Friday was a terrible thing. Some of you have been in that place for someone else, or you have gone through the prison system yourself. It's a terrible place to be, a courtroom. I tell you, I felt the presence of the Lord there undergirding and making strong for the occasion. But I want you to know, friends, I didn't sense his presence any more than when I'm talking one-on-one to a person about Jesus, wanting so much to build a bridge with that person that I have to be dependent on the Lord's spirit within me because I'm not capable of. I tell you, friends, I, I, know, what you're, I know what you're thinking. You're the professional. I'm not. I'm just out here. I'm a nobody. You're a somebody. That is not true. I don't know that I've influenced anybody for the king. Maybe one high school friend. When I started the ministry, I was scared to death to talk to people about Jesus. How can a Bible college graduate be with a degree in ministry be scared to talk to anybody about Jesus? I don't know. Quit asking me. (laughs) 
embarrassing, but I had a mentor who every morning in the church office would say, who were you with last night? Who'd you go visit? Who'd you, who, who'd you, who'd you talk to? And if he hadn't been doing that, when my job was on the line, I would have caved. And so I would drive down a house, you know, that I know need Jesus, and I was praying their lights would be off. <laughs> oh, they're not home. Oh, the door's closed. I'm sure they're not there. One day it will be Jesus asking me, where were you last night? Who'd you talk to last week, today? I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. You're not alone, brethren, so you're not alone. When you are fearing, when you are wondering what to say, tripping over your words, Jesus is with you. You are not alone. These are desperate times. I don't know if the world's worth. People say to me, you know, in the world, in the world, don't you think Jesus is coming back? The world is so bad. I don't know if it's any worse than it's ever been. When I read Genesis, that's a pretty crummy world. The Bible says in Noah's day, every thought and intention of man's heart was evil of every person. So much so that God could only see eight people worth saving through the flood. It may be that communication is such today that we just know more. I don't know. I don't know. I do know he's coming back, and I know it's going to be in a twinkling of an eye, the Bible says, and I need to be ready, and I need help, need help of other people get ready, just like you do, keeping the divine cycle going, right? Getting disciple makers. Desperate times. I mean, the world is at ill at rest. You know, the, our nation, in my lifetime at least, has never known such political turmoil as we're in. The nation is so angry at different levels. You know, we, we, we focus on national debt and the right person in the White House and changing laws. Our hope is not in Capitol Hill, but in Calvary's Hill. Remember that? Jesus only is the hope of this messed up world. Someone loved you enough to get you to Jesus. Who do you love enough to get to Jesus? When I was in college and beyond, I was so influenced by the writing and the teaching of Dr. Howard Hendricks. He was a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary for a number of years. He served as chaplain of the Dallas Cowboys for eight years when Tom Landry was coach. I heard him at seminars uh, preach. I didn't go to Dallas Seminary, but, but he wrote a lot of books on education, and I was an education major, and, and uh, read a lot of his things. He just, he was a humorist, theologian. Uh, you ju he just warmed your heart and challenged your life. Howard Hendricks, he was called Howie as a little boy. Uh, he grew up in Philadelphia. His came from a broken home. His grandparents raised him. His grandfather was an alcoholic. He was a street kid, and his teachers told him they expected him to, to end up in prison one day. But there was a nearby little church, a Baptist church. And there was a member of that church named Walt. And Walt had about a sixth grade education. And he went to the leaders there because he wanted to teach. And they knew his limited educational background. And they said, well, no, but if you want to find your own group, we'll, we'll, we'll get a group, we'll get a, we'll get a uh, classroom for you. And so Howie tells his story. Walt came down my street one day looking for boys for his Sunday school class. Well, anything that had school in it was bad news item for me. Then Walt said, well, how'd you like to play marbles? That was different. Then this tall, thin man 
stooped down and whipped me in every game of marbles we played. I lost my marbles early in life. But this man, with barely a sixth grade education, loved boys in a way that drew them irresistibly to Jesus Christ. Wherever Walt was going, I wanted to go. He became my spiritual father. From Walt's first class of 13 boys from the streets, 11 of us eventually entered Christian ministry. Two became professors, six became missionaries, and three became preachers. That's the cycle of disciple-making. Are you keeping the cycle going? Or have you stopped it? Are you more acquainted with Jesus' great commission or the great omission? Some of you are old enough to remember the little ditty I remember from the Coca-Cola company in the 1970s. I'd like to teach the world to sing and perfect harmony. You remember? 45 years later, we remember the ditty. I'd like to teach the world to sing of the glory of Jesus Christ. Let's join together in the greatest work in the world. Let's pray. Our Father, I can't pray this prayer on behalf of this congregation without first confessing my own sin of neglect. You've called me into Christian ministry. But Father, I have missed so many opportunities. I have not always seen people as you see them. In fact, along the way, I have offended folks. Please forgive me. I pray, Father, that we have a renewed burden for lost people. That our own salvation will never be sufficient. Burn in us again, Father. because of your grace and mercy. I pray when each of us stands before you, there'll be a host around us telling God of what we meant to them. So please enliven us and burden us and open our mouths that we may speak of what's happened that Jesus Christ will be known. In him we pray. Amen.